This podcast is and always will be ad-free, but we rely on listeners like you to show us the love and subscribe. It helps others find the show, so please write us a review on the App Store by going to make.sc slash podcast review. You can also go to make.sc slash podcast to see the show notes, and we invite you to leave comments, join in on the discussion, and tell us what you think of the episode. Welcome to the Positivity Podcast, where we explore the skills and strategies of personal development with cutting-edge researchers, authors, entrepreneurs, and experts. Take a walk in someone else's shoes is a common saying, but what if you literally did? Wore the sandals of a refugee loafers of a business person, sneakers of a dog walker in Sacramento who just wants Scruffy to finish his treat? What if you could literally see life outside your own head? Roman Kaznarik is trying to enable exactly that. He's the founder of the Empathy Museum, author of Empathy, Why It Matters and How to Get It, and he claims we should develop empathy like an extreme sport, a boot camp. Roman and I talk tactics of empathy development for individuals and organizations. We also discuss how to break down barriers between people, and Roman shares some stories of how empathy brought about some of the greatest innovations of the last century. No matter your shoe size, I think this episode will have something for you. Time to upgrade. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I guess the first question I have, what's been on your mind? What has been on my mind is death, actually. I've been just today looking at Steve Jobs's very famous uh, address to Stanford students called How to Live Before You Die. Um, if you look at it on YouTube, it's had over 30 or 40 million views. And his basic idea is, well... You know, he says, as he said in 2005, every day for the last 33 years, I've looked myself in the mirror and asked myself if this were the last day of my life, is this what I would want to do? And if I answer no too many days in a row, I change my mind. And that's an old idea going back to the Romans, the ancient Romans, the idea to live every day as if it were your last. So I mean, that's what is on my mind is what a ridiculous idea that is um, and how um, it's probably a pretty unwise, unwise way to think about life. Why is it unwise? I think because it is based on, I think there's two problems. Mm-hmm. Why? Uh, one is it makes us, puts us in a mindset of just thinking about the moment, the day, um, things that can be achieved in the short term. Live every day as if you're last. Well, if you live like that, you'd never embark on having children where the rewards come far down the line. You'd never embark on long-term creative projects like writing books as um, I would do. Um, so there's a question of time period there. Why, why not switch it from live every day as your last, live every six months as your last, or live every year as your last? Yeah. Um, and that would give you a different mindset. But I think more fundamentally, what's wrong with it is it really is prone to a kind of hyper-individualism. 
it's a philosophy of life which doesn't really take into account anybody else outside you and your own universe. Um, you know, because we only not only have obligations to our future selves, but of course to, to other people. So it's precisely the idea of living as if there's no tomorrow, which is responsible for a whole mentality which leads us to trash the planet without thoughts for future generations, for example. So, you know, I quite like to turn it on its head. Why not live every day as if it were your first, you know? Um, <laughs> To be like my kids who see a giraffe for the first time and think, my God, this is incredible. Um, I didn't believe these things existed outside picture books. Um, so that is what is on my mind, thinking about death. Death. And so you've been also thinking a lot about empathy. And when it comes to meeting someone for the first time, you know, like you're meeting a giraffe or whatever it may be, how do you think about meeting that person and really seeing them for who they are and connecting them with them? How do you approach that? There's a wonderful oral historian who died a few years ago based in Chicago called Studs Turkle. And he used to interview people on a radio program and publish these incredible books um, based on his interviews. And he used to say something very interesting. He used to say, everyone is an expert on their own experience. And he also said, you know, we need to be led by our curiosity. So when I meet someone new, the first thing I do is try and think to myself, that person is more interesting than me. I want to understand who they are and how they see the world. I don't want to interrogate them like a journalist. I want to try and create a conversation where I understand their perspective on life. And I think that is the first recipe for encounters with strangers. It's the best way to overcome prejudices and stereotypes and build empathy. And empathy, of course, is the art of you know, stepping into the shoes of another person and seeing the world through their eyes. And if you're interested in being a creative thinker, then that kind of journey into someone else's perspective is absolutely fundamental because it shakes you out of your own view of the world. What is the difference between empathy and sympathy? Yes, there's a lot of confusion about empathy and sympathy. So if, you, if you're walking past a homeless guy, you might want to sort of feel sorry for him, feel pity. That's sympathy, where you have an emotional response, but you haven't really tried to see things from his or her perspective. Empathy is about making that leap into understanding what is it like to be them, with their experiences, their view of the world. What's it like to be walked past every day without someone looking you in the eye? Um, so empathy is a bit harder than sympathy because it means stepping outside yourself. The great Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw once says, do not do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. They might have different tastes. Empathy, empathy is about discovering those different tastes because let's face it, you can feel sorry for somebody for their suffering, but we're so often wrong about people. We have so many assumptions about, about people, whether it's Muslim fundamentalists or wealthy bankers or people living on welfare and so on. Um, so I think that the inquisitive mind is one that's led by that desire to make the leap from sympathy uh, to empathy. I don't think it's enough just to feel sorry for people and it leads to inappropriate response. So for example, yeah. Um, if there is an earthquake on another side of the world, you know, you might want to send teddy bears to help the children, but they may not need teddy bears. What they might need is trauma counseling or sanitation, you know, and that's what empathy is about. Anybody who's interested in design 
of anything, whether it's um, you know designing a universe uh, a user experience for a website or designing products or anything, needs to be able to recognize that their perspectives are not enough. You need to step into the shoes of the other, whether it's you know an older person using some product that you're making or a five year old trying to navigate an app. So if you want to make that jump from sympathy to empathy, as, as I'm sure a lot of people do to really understand others, you know, what comes to mind for me is the sort of generalized talk of empathy and everyone's talking about being empathetic and it sometimes isn't necessarily the most attainable thing. There's a lot of lip service given to it. If you were to codify, what are the specific aspects of empathy that people can develop. Because as I'm sitting here and, and thinking about, oh my gosh, you know, there's this earthquake in Nepal, I want to understand their perspectives because it'll make me a fuller human being, it'll make me smarter. You know, uh, my, my mind stops and strategically I can't move forward. And, you know, I would want to be able to approach empathy like I could my marketing career <laughs> or, or building code where I could really sit down and then have tangible results that five years later, I could be say, tell myself, wow, I'm a more empathetic person. So what does yeah. that look like? And, and how do you know if you are becoming more empathetic? So I think the first thing to do is to practice the art of empathic listening. And what you need to do is this. Whenever you're in a conversation with someone, whether it's a tense situation or an argument or some other situation, to practice empathy, you need to do two things. First, listen out for the other person's feelings and the second thing is listen out for other people's needs. And if you listen out for people's feelings and needs and give them a chance to express their feelings... What does that mean, listen to their feelings? So you're having an argument with your partner, your husband or wife, mm -hmm. boyfriend or girlfriend, and, they, and you've come in late from the office. And they are saying, you know, why the hell are you so late? Well, rather than immediately jump into your own defense, you need to try and ask them, you know, why they why they're saying that and what what, what the issue is what are they, what are they feeling and what is it that you're not needs that you're not responding to and what's incredible is that tension and arguments and so on seem you know tend to dissipate they diminish when you listen out for other people's feelings and needs and people can express them um, because people basically just want to be listened to you can't always agree reach agreement with somebody my daughter my six-year-old daughter sometimes has a tantrum you know she's you know crying about something and i might try and articulate her feelings and needs and say look are you crying because i'm not taking you to the park right now and even if i'm wrong about the reason she's likely to, you know, stop crying and we can start having a conversation about it. So what so, are the right right and wrong ways to listen to someone's feelings? Because I'm, I'm sure your sister would get angry. It's like, you're angry because you want to go to the park and you can't. You know, I'm sure like, what, 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 what's the nuance of listening to people's feelings and how it's done well? I think the first, the first thing is to not interrupt people when they're talking. We're so afraid of pauses, the moments of silence. Um, but actually, if ever you've done interviewing of people, and I've done a lot of interviewing of people about their lives over the years, um, you ask someone a question, and it's when they pause just that they're about to say something really absolutely amazing. Um, but if you jump in there and fill the pause, um, you're normally stopping a conversational shift or insight. So I think you've got to, you've got to be respect the pause is the first thing. I think the second thing is to sometimes ask people what their feelings and needs are 
uh, explicitly. A third thing you can do is uh, a method used in something called nonviolent communication, where someone says something and you try and repeat back to them what they have said, but using slightly different and more neutral language. So someone might be screaming at you saying, you know, why have you come back so, so late? And you might reflect back saying, so you're, you're upset because I've, I've come back, you know, later than I, I said I was going to. And it's amazing the shift it, it makes. So there's a statistic that the inventor of nonviolent communication gives, a guy called Marshall Rosenberg. He says that in disputes between employers and employees, if both sides agree to literally repeat what the other side said, before they start speaking themselves, you reach conflict resolution 50% faster. Right? And that's just by actually repeating what the other side said. It's quite remarkable. So these are some of the keys to empathic listening. I think practicing empathy is also about practicing conversations with strangers. I think everyone should go out and have a conversation with a stranger at least once a week to develop the habit of challenging your own assumptions and prejudices about other others. I mean, just to give you an example, for many years, I used to walk down a street around the corner from where I live in Oxford in England, past this homeless guy who used to always be talking to himself and picking up cigarette butts off the floor and seemed kind of crazy. So I stopped, started to talk to him one day. Well, it turned out that he was very different from what I expected. He had a degree in philosophy from Oxford University, and we developed a friendship based on our mutual interest in Aristotle's ethics and pepperoni pizza. Um, but it was a great lesson to me about the, the assumptions and prejudices we all have about people. And so I think we need to be adventurous conversationalists. And instead of asking someone, how are you, you know, be a bit more adventurous. You know, what was the most surprising thing um, that, you know, happened to you on the weekend or the way that you started the conversation um, between us today about asking me what was on my mind? These are all openings to getting beyond the cliched rigmarole of things that we, you know, talking about the weather and the and sports results. Um, so we need to be good at adventurous conversation. I'm leaving room for pause for you to say something uh, profound. <laughs> Didn't wait long enough. Ah, <laughs> oh, dang. <laughs> but I Next tell. Next time. Um, what are some good question asking techniques and maybe specific questions, too, that can help you form a more uh, empathetic understanding of someone. I think if you want to go off, treat it as an extreme sport, um, you know, I ask people, what would you like written on your tombstone? Um, things like that. And it's a bit much for some people. I think actually it's easier to um, start with, you know, questions like, you know, what was the most surprising thing that happened to you on the weekend? Or what were you thinking about at 11 o'clock this morning is what I asked someone yesterday I had never met before when I had a meeting with them. Um, and I think it's also about not being afraid of being personal in any work or other situation. You know, you're just with another human being. I used to run a project called the Oxford Muse, built M-U-S-E where we used to try and create conversations within companies and government departments where we'd sit people down, maybe the, the board members with the people who worked in the warehouse or the secretaries, and we sit them down opposite each other. And instead of giving them a menu of food, we give them a menu of conversation. And on the menu would be questions about life, like what have you learned about the different varieties of love in the course of your life? Or how have your priorities changed over the years? 
It was the opposite of speed dating. You know, you talk for one hour, not for one minute. And it's amazing what people will share. But this is how you start creating bonds in an organization, for example. You wouldn't believe that the uh, upper management would be willing to talk about their philosophy of love, um, you know, with people further down the hierarchy. But they will if everyone in the room is doing the same thing. Um, so I think that that converse, being adventurous in a conversational sense is absolutely um, fundamental. But what's also important is to not reduce everything to technique. There are a hundred books on communication techniques out there, and most of them should be burned. Um, and that's because they tell you specific things to say at a specific moment, a specific time, and so on. And I think we need to be a bit more free form um, in becoming a, um, a good conversationalist. I think ultimately it's about curiosity. It's about trying to understand the view of the other, to not be dominating them with your own perspective. Like everyone's been in those situations where, you know, you talk to a friend and say, oh God, my girlfriend just left me. And the other person says, wow, wow, you should hear what happened to me. You know, something much worse. Well, that's not much use. Um, there needs to be a kind of equality built into it. I can imagine a concern that some people might have, especially in the work environment, would be once I open up this can of empathy or have these deep conversations, am I going to be opening something that's overwhelming or I can't control? For example, if I have this, com- this deep conversation with a coworker and she's, she or he starts telling me about a love life and this challenge that they're going through and then next thing you know, it's, it's eight weeks later and you've spent an hour a week talking with them about this. And so I think that sometimes, at least in a lot of the people I've met, a, a sort of hesitation as to going deep with someone because you might see you know, the vulnerable side that you may not even know how to handle or react to, or you might be kind of getting a relationship so deep that if, if it feels harder to back away, you know, if, if it seems like you're not the right match. How do you think about that in terms of empathy? Yeah, it's a good point, and, and particularly because in some work contexts also, making yourself vulnerable um, is a, seen as a sign of weakness. If you work in an investment bank or something, which is kind of, kind of like a macho work atmosphere, you might fear that people are going to think that you are a bit flaky and, and so on. And I think this is where a certain kind of courage is required. But I think that conversational openness doesn't and adventurousness doesn't necessarily mean that emotionally you have to kind of let it all hang out and tell somebody all of your deepest problems. I think it's about ultimately about being creative about the way you approach conversation, about you know not being afraid to say that you don't understand something, for example, or to put forward an idea that you others might think are crazy. Um, I mean, there are so many examples of um, people holding back from talking because of sort of fear and so on um, when they've had amazing ideas. And it's actually asking the, the crazy questions or even the obvious questions and overcoming fears which can lead to change. And in fact, the example which comes to mind, slightly related to empathy, is a famous designer, product designer called Patricia Moore, um, American product designer, um, 
voted by Time magazine, one of the most 50 influential Americans, so a lot of people haven't heard of her. Well, in the 1970s, she was the only female designer working at a famous design firm in New York called Raymond Lowy. They designed the curvy Coca-Cola bottle and the Shell logo. And as a 26-year-old, she was in a meeting with some senior partners talking about something kind of boring, which was the design of a refrigerated door. And she said to one of the senior partners, one of these men, she said, you know, couldn't we design the door so that it was easy for an older person with arthritis to open? And this senior partner said to her, you know, Patricia, we don't design for those people. And this made her really angry. And she decided to conduct an empathy experiment. She decided to find out, well, what is it like to be an 85-year-old woman um, trying to open a fridge door with arthritic hands? So she hired a professional makeup artist to look at, make her look old and wrinkled. She put on fogged up glasses so she couldn't see properly. Um, she put plugs in her ears so she couldn't hear. She bound up her arms and hands and bandages so it was like she was arthritic and couldn't move put on uneven shoes so she couldn't walk properly. Then between 1979 and 1982, she visited over 100 North American cities in her disguise as an 85-year-old woman. And she really looked 85 when she was 26. It's incredible. There are photos in my book about it. Um, and she went, went into over 100 cities and to find out how did people treat her? What was it like trying to go in and out of department store doors or walk up and down subway stairs or to use tin openers or open refrigerated doors with bound up hands? And at the end of her incredibly immersive empathy experience, um, which everyone thought was crazy, she came up with some of the business world's most innovative designs. So if you open the drawer of your kitchen, in your kitchen and to the cutlery drawer, you might take out one of those thick rubber handled tin openers or can open uh, potato peelers. That's her invention. It's called the OXO Good Grip. Millions, tens of millions of those have been sold around the world. It's designed so someone with arthritic hands can pick, pick it up. If ever you use a touch lamp, well, that's one of Patricia Moore's inventions. Invented so someone who was older, who couldn't turn a switch, was able to turn on a switch. It came out of her empathy experiments. She invented something that's now called universal design, is the concept. That it, the idea that anything should be designed so it can be used by a five-year-old or an 85-year-old, uh, whether it's a, you know, a tin opener or a glass or a chair or a car door or whatever it is. Um, and I think that kind of example of experiential immersion tells us another route into empathy, which is different from conversation. It's about actually having a physical experience of somebody else's life. And this idea of experiential immersion has become common, quite common in the design world. But you would still be amazed at the number of you know, architects who will design a building um, without getting a wheelchair user to actually go around and try and use the stuff in it. You know? um, it's it's absolutely extraordinary. There's still enormous blindness, and I think empathy is one of the roots to rethinking uh, product design, um, software design, all sorts of stuff. So the example of Patricia Patricia Moore was her name. Patricia Moore taking on the experience and the conversation between the people in the warehouse. What are some other? Are there any other types of tools for empathy. And do you have another example or other examples of really designed experiences or experiments that can help people become more empathetic? Yeah. I mean, I think if you, I think it's worth thinking about some of the great 
most important experiments in this empathy uh, arena. Um, so, for example, there is a amazing global network of pop-up museums called Dialogue in the Dark. And it's appeared in over 130 cities. Over 7 million people have been to it. And what it is is an experience for an hour of being in, immersed in complete darkness, of being visually impaired. And it's very different from those terrible management training courses where you put on a blindfold for five minutes. It's really very immersive. Um, and you get taken by a blind guide through a space, um, which is a kind of a life and everyday life, the life of someone who's blind or visually impaired. And so you'll go into a marketplace, you'll smell and spices and so on. You'll go into a simulated subway train where you'll um, try and click in your ticket. Um, you will um, even go to a, where you cross a kind of busy road where things are badly parked. And at the end, actually, you, there's a bar where you fumble around for your coins and notes and you buy a beer from a blind barman and you sit down with your blind guide and talk to them. Um, and these kinds of experiences are you know, somewhat accessible because this dialogue in the dark exists in different cities in different places. Those kinds of things can kickstart you into um, empathic understanding. Um, you, know, you know, anyone who's spent, uh, who's broken a leg and spent, you know, a couple of months in a wheelchair will know it will suddenly completely change their view of people who are uh, disabled or in wheelchairs and or, or some, something like that. Um, so those kinds of things are really important. I also actually think that there are a lot of easier ways to ratchet up your empathy levels. Um, even just watching films and reading books. I mean, I founded a website called the Empathy Library at www.empathylibrary.com. And you can go and see reviews of books and films and top tens um, of, uh, of sort of literary and other um, things which put you in the shoes of another person. You can watch a film like City of God, which is about what's it like to be a young boy growing up in a in a shanty town in in Brazil in Rio. You can see another. There's a film called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly about a editor of Vogue magazine in Paris. True story. Who got paralysed and all he could do was blink his left eyelid, and he dictated a book about his experience just by working out a code, um, blinking his eyelid. But you, again, you're there, you're immersed in the life of someone with a, a totally different perspective. And these things are very fundamental and easy to do on a Friday night. Um, watch an empathy film, something that trans takes you into another world that you would never imagine into what it's like to be a young woman in, uh, you know, in Iran. And not only empathize with the poor and the down and outs, but empathize with people whose views you might disagree with. This is very, very important um, that we do that as well. I love, by the way, I, I, it sounds like I'm hearing a little bit of like, uh, uh, is that on your end or my end or do you know? That is not my end because the <laughs> builders, three doors, three um, doing a, um, uh, a repair, a building a loft, doing a loft conversion. So we must empathize with the... Uh, with the workers, the the great German playwright <laughs> Bertolt Brecht wrote a poem called "A Worker Reads History," an empathy poem, in fact. And it starts, "Who built the seven gates of Thebes? Was it the kings who hauled the craggy blocks of stone? You know, when the Chinese wall was built, where did the masons go?" And I think that is another opening into empathy, because it's about trying to imagine who are the people on who we depend every day, but who we don't actually see. 
and a, and a good empathy practice, if you want to practice empathy, spend one day a month just trying to think about who are the people on whom I, I depend. When you're drinking your coffee, who, tri- who, who picked the coffee beans? You know, when you're putting on your shirt, who sewed that shirt? Who made the road on which you're driving your car? And these are ways of shifting our imaginative world. But of course, that's what empathy is all about. It's about, the great thing about empathy is that it's, um, it, it demonstrates the power of the human imagination. So just to give you an example of a psychology experiment um, done by a guy called Dan Batson, University of Kansas. So he took two groups of people and they listened to the same radio recording of a woman in distress because her parents had just been killed in a car accident. And he asked the first group just to listen to the bare facts of the recording um, and sort of listen objectively. And he said to the other group, try and imagine what it is like to be this young woman. Try and see things from her point of view. Now, afterwards, uh, when he did various tests, he discovered, of course, the ones who had done the empathy perspective-taking uh, instruction to imagine the other the woman's perspective, they were more likely to give time and money to help her than those who'd listened objectively. And there's, um, and I think it tells us something by just imagining what it is like to be another person. It motivates us to act on other people's behalves. But what's really cool about empathy is that it's not doesn't just make us a good moral person. It's good for us too. That there's a huge amount of evidence showing that practicing empathy increases human well-being. Ah, could you speak to that evidence? Yeah. So there are. Lots and lots of studies which basically show that make a distinction between what are often called extrinsic values and intrinsic values. So there's a psychologist called Tim Kasser who writes about this. And intrinsic values are the things that motivate, uh, extrinsic values are things that motivate us, which sort of come from the outside, the motivation for money as a reward for work or social status and so on. Intrinsic values are much more to do with relationships. It's about the quality of your relationships with friends or family, your embeddedness and community and so on. And what the evidence shows is that it's intrinsic values which tends to do more for our well-being and happiness, depending on how you measure it, than the extrinsic values. Extrinsic values still matter. We all need recognition from others. And the thing about the way to cultivate intrinsic values is through empathy. It's about cultivating a connection with another person. Um, and, you know, there's, you know, one in four people in the United States say that they are chronically lonely, that they'd have no intimate friendships. It's extraordinary. Human beings don't like being alone. They want to feel connected. And ultimately, that's what empathy does for you. It makes you feel connected to other people. Um, and this is why empathy is so important for well-being. And when you combine it with, I think, its creativity benefits like the example of Patricia Moore that we talked about, seeing the perspective of the other gives us insight. I think it's sort of hands down, empathy is a kind of thing that should be taught to every elementary school kid or younger. Um, and in fact, the world's best empathy teaching program starts with kids who are five years old. It's called Roots of Empathy. And it began in Canada in the mid-1990s. It's been done in the U.S. and other countries. Over half a million children around the world have done it. And the cool thing about it is the way it works is that a, a class of kids adopts a real live baby for the year. I'm not kidding. Real, a real baby comes into the class every few weeks with a parent and instructor. An actual program. baby. 
an actual baby, yep, uh, not a doll, and the kids sit around the baby. And they start talking about the baby. In fact, I, I saw it recently in Toronto. They start talking about the baby. Why is the baby, why is she crying? Why is she laughing? Why is she looking at the mother as she's reaching across for the toy? They're empathizing. They're trying to step into the baby's shoes. And they use that as a jumping off point for then talking about, well, what's it like to be a kid bullied in the playground? Or what's it like to be someone in a wheelchair? And what this program does is it not only increases empathy levels, but it increases cooperation, reduces conflict in the playground, and it even increases general academic attainment, you know, in maths and science and other other things. So I think every child should have the right to do programs like, you know, Roots of Empathy. Um, and I think adults would probably be, be useful for them as well. But of course, it's better to develop your empathy when you are younger, when your, your neural networks are a little bit more malleable, let us say. So you're sold on empathy. I'm sold on empathy. Tons and tons of teachers are sold on empathy. I can imagine that it's the people who say, oh, I don't, I don't need to listen to this and I don't, I don't need empathy, who are likely the ones who need it the most. If you, how do you, because I know you've, you've taught at the School of Life and that's a great idea too. <laughs> yeah, it would be good. I mean, I'd love to see the people on your courses trying to develop empathy apps as projects, um, which can become part of the digital version of the Empathy Museum I'm setting up. Um, what are some are, of the other components? Uh, at the Empathy Museum, there's going to be um, uh, a human library, as I mentioned, that you can borrow people for conversation as well as a shoe shop. There are going to be conversation meals where people sit down with menus of conversation uh, to talk with each other. There are going, there's going to be an empathy hairdressers, you know, you, anyone who goes to get a haircut, you know that's a great place for conversation. Um, there'll be people from different cultures who will cut your hair. Um, I mean, a whole load of different interactions like that. We're trying to sweat up, set up a sweatshop experience. So former Vietnamese sweatshop workers um, or from Honduras will give you an experience of uh, what it's like to try and make a t-shirt like the one you're probably wearing at this moment under sweatshop labor conditions. You will make a shirt or sew on at some buttons or something like that. And at the end, you'll get paid, you know, five cents at the end of it, like they would get paid. You try and step into their shoes. Um, all these things are part of an empathy uh, museum experience is going to be like, and we'll be building, building them up over time and, the, you know, deploying them to different countries uh, we're taking the Empathy Museum to Australia in February. Um, I'd love to bring it to the U.S. Um, to put it next to the Exploratorium in San Francisco um, as a way of discovering, you know, not the scientific world, but the human world. So most of our conversation this far has been talking about empathy, and we haven't yet talked about you and 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 us and this conversation which is kind of ironic that we haven't had an empathetic experience yet um so i'm wondering how is your soul how are you doing what's what's been going through your mind what's on your mind and what's on your heart nowadays what is on my mind and what is on my heart um one of the things i'm thinking about is how to become a better parent so i have six-year-old twins now the only people in the world I ever shout at are my kids. I never raise my voice at anybody. So that's something I, I'm thinking about a lot at the moment. In a way, it's about how to manage stress and so on, because the only time I do shout at my kids is really not when they've done something bad or wrong. It's actually when things are difficult in my own life and you know I transfer the emotions. That's something on my mind. 
Uh, something else on my mind is my parents um, are visiting from Australia. I'm from Australia, and they're coming in a couple of weeks. And they they've been they were here a couple of weeks ago. And I'm noticing them getting older, and I'm fearing their mortality. And I'm thinking about how to be, in this case, not a better parent, but a better a better son, and how to grasp these moments with them. And that's partly why I've been thinking about Steve Jobs and the idea of living every day as if your last. I'm thinking about my parents thinking, I want to live every day as if it were their last or our last day together. And doing that has made me more open with my emotions, listening to listen to them more, laugh harder, have a better time with them. Um, and I think that's been very, very, very interesting. Um, and the other thing I've been thinking about, and my soul, is, you know, there's something funny about being an author, but I spend a lot of time, um, you know, talking to people about my ideas and my books and so on. And at the moment, I'm thinking that I need to expand my mind beyond the things that I've been writing. Um, I used to do a lot of carpentry and woodwork, craft, use of my hands, but I'm not doing it a lot at the moment because I'm immersed in books and interviews and book tours and so on. And I think that craft is an important part of being human, to create things which are beautiful and functional. I used to make a lot of furniture, and I think anybody who's trying to think about how to be a full human being should be thinking about, okay, how can I not only use my mind but use my hands, combine mind and body? And this is an idea that goes back to the great 19th century socialist thinker in Britain, William Morris, who was a, a poet and a political writer, but also was a weaver and an artist and a furniture maker and a printer and so on. And in fact, around the world, we're seeing a revival, particularly the Western world, of the idea of craft, um, the idea of mixing your labor with the world. And I think it keeps us alive. Um, in, a, in very sort of interesting ways because we are bodily creatures, you know. We are, I feel myself aging. You know, I'm only 44, but I feel myself slowing down. I, I'm quite a good athlete and I'm, I'm slowing down. I'm dropping down the rank, the tennis rankings that I play in and so on. And I'm um, trying to think, oh, how do I, I need to embody my own life a little bit more through craft, through um, other things to recognize that I'm not just a cerebral being, but um, one that is physical. You know, 70% of human body weight is muscle for moving. You know, and yet I spend most of my time sitting down. I read an amazing statistic today. Every hour of watching television reduces your life expectancy by 21.8 minutes. Pretty amazing. Now, why is that? It's because sedentary behavior is bad for us. Human beings are not designed to sit still, right? So things like watching TV or sitting down at a desk are incredibly bad for us. They lead, basically give us heart disease. Even if you exercise regularly and have a good diet, there are now dozens and dozens of studies based on sample sizes of tens of thousands showing that sedentary behavior is bad for your mortality. Um, so don't watch television. Um, or jiggle around a lot while you're doing it. Um, don't sit at the desk for too long. 
And these are these sort of physical things. So these, these are partly the things in my mind. Of course, they ultimately go back to the idea that life is short, um, carpe diem, that the moments are ticking away. And I have had on my screensaver for a long time a, um, a little clock which tells me how many seconds I've got left to live. There's a website you can go to called Death Clock. Um, and you put into it your vital statistics, your age and height, whether you smoke or not, and so on. And drawing on a database, it tells you when you're going to die. I think I'm going to die on October the 13th, 2044, or something like that, according to this. I think, like, hell, that is soon. And I can see the ticket, t- the seconds ticking away on my screen. That is an incentive for me to... Um, live rather than not live so these are the things which are exercising my mind which are infiltrating my soul (laughs) excellent and so you have this book um, empathy why it matters and how to get it what are some of the big takeaways from it or things that you want people to get out of it I think it's a lot of the things that we've spoken about actually that Empathy isn't just something that makes you good. It's something that's good for you. You know, it's good for well-being. And I think it's that, you know, I think ultimately all my books, including this one, try and do two things. They are about the art of living and social change. They are about, in this case, a concept of empathy where stepping into someone else's shoes it's good for your own life because it cements your relationships, but it's also about how we change society because we overcome social divides. And I think the human struggle to find a, to have a meaningful life, basically all the evidence shows that if you pursue your self-interest and not much else, you're unlikely to have a happy life. Um, we all need to be dedicated to transcendent causes, as the philosopher Peter Singer calls it, things outside ourselves which give our lives meaning. And I think this is part what empathy does is it gives you a way into discovering the things that you care about in the world. It doesn't mean that everybody has to work for Oxfam and go and work in South Sudan. You know, your realm of action might be on your street. It might be in your family, whatever it is. But ultimately, it needs to be something outside of yourself. Um, and so that is what I want people to take away with them. And, you know, I've written another book um, called How to Find Fulfilling Work. And it's, you know, the key idea there is exactly that to find meaningful work, we need to put our values into practice. You know, Aristotle said, where the needs of the world and your talents meet, there lies your vocation. In other words, do something, A, that you're really good at and something that you actually care about outside yourself. And all the evidence shows that that's the way you're going to have long-term job satisfaction. Anything else you'd like to share before we close out? Anything else I would like to share? Um, I think just that, you know, for the last century, human beings have been taught to be individualistic and introspective. I think of the last century is the age of introspection where we try to discover ourselves by looking inside ourselves. That's what Freud told us, and that's what Oprah tells us too. I think the 21st century is an age of outrospection, an age where you discover who you are and how to live by stepping outside yourself, discovering the lives of other people, 
and other cultures. And I think empathy is the ultimate art form for creating um, a new age of introspection in the 21st century. Whatever you're doing, whether you're studying business or design or literature or um, you're a coder or whatever it is, the good life, as the ancient Greeks called it, doesn't just come from knowing thyself. It comes from knowing, knowing others. Instead of saying, I think, therefore I am, say instead, you are, therefore I am. That's my final thought. Well, thank you so much. This has been a, a joyous look into empathy, and I really appreciate all the tactics and not tactics and perspectives you shared. And we'll definitely put up links to the book as well as the museum, and hopefully it'll be coming to San Francisco soon. Cool. And thanks so much for coming on. I had a blast, and I'm, I'm so excited to hop into someone else's shoes, literally, and start doing some of this stuff in my own life i'm gonna try it as well great because i'm engaged in the struggle as much as anybody else so thank you for the conversation it was fun and um may you have adventurous conversations over the next 24 hours say things that you've never said before thanks a lot thanks this podcast is and always will be ad free but we rely on listeners like you to show us the love and subscribe it helps others find the show, so please write us a review on the App Store by going to make.sc slash podcast review. You can also go to make.sc slash podcast to see the show notes, and we invite you to leave comments, join in on the discussion, and tell us what you think of the episode. Continuing on, we have our next episode on willpower with John Tierney, New York Times bestselling author who wrote a book on the subject with Roy Baumeister, the leading researcher on willpower.